I'm Michelle Kelly, editor of Cottage Life magazine. We are back. I'm delighted to welcome you to the first episode of season three of the Cottage Life podcast. In this episode, we learn all about the fascinating science of wayfinding. Plus, we look back on a special Georgian Bay treasure hunt before kicking off our series of reader highlights to celebrate the 35th anniversary of Cottage Life. This is the Cottage Life podcast, where every day is the weekend. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. We don't get many summer weekends in Canada, so we need to embrace every single one of them. That means my family and I get outside no matter what. Whether the sky is grey or the wind off the lake is chilly, or even when the mosquitoes are biting. But before we head out, we need a reliable bug repellent, and that's where Oft Gentle Insect Repellent comes in. It's deep free and repels mosquitoes for up to 5 hours, so you can use it with confidence on the whole family, 6 months and older. Plus, the formula feels good on the skin, and it's not oily, sticky, or greasy. Try it. And you'll have one more great reason to embrace the outdoors every summer weekend. One day last spring, Cottage Life Deputy Editor Leanne Bobechko and I got talking about directions. I admitted to her that my sense of direction has always been terrible. Then Leanne made a confession of her own. That one day last winter, she got lost in the woods at her own cottage, a place she's been going to for her whole life, a place she knew like the back of her hand, or at least she thought she did. I was immediately intrigued. How could one get lost in a place that's so familiar? And if Leanne, whose sense of direction is generally pretty good, certainly much better than my own, if she can get lost at her cottage, what does that mean for the rest of us? Leanne explored the science around getting lost when she wrote about her experience for a recent issue of Cottage Life, and she's here to share her findings with us. Welcome back to the podcast, Leanne. It's so great to have you here. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. So listen, let's start with you telling me the story of what happened that day in the woods. So it started out pretty, you know, we weren't thinking about things too deeply. We were, you know, needed to get outside. We'd been inside all day. We had a little bit of cabin fever going and um, this was in February. It was about four o'clock. We put on our snowshoes and we decided not to go on our usual trek. Let's strike out in a slightly different path. It's a path that I've gone before, but only in the summertime. And this mm-hmm. was in the winter. This was my husband and my two daughters and I. And we kept going up the hill and um, and people were getting a bit tired and ornery because it was you know a longer trek getting than close to dinner some of getting close to dinner yeah and uh and then it started to get chilly because the sun was starting to go down and we said okay let's let's hit it let's go back and we decided to go down the hill that was in front of us rather than backtracking on the path that we'd just come up and then at the bottom of the hill um I kind of was trying to get my bearings and I was thinking, okay, well, the creek should be over there, but you know what it's like in the snow when everything's sort of like all the features are are leveled out and mm-hmm. you can't really see mm-hmm. anything. So I was like, oh God, did we like did we turn when we were coming down the hill? Did we kind of get turned around and go the opposite way? So we're you know following the creek going away from the road. And you know, like I just had this like moment of panic. I was like, oh my God, you know, I don't 
I actually kind of don't know where I am. Which, like, let's let's remember here. You are in the woods. Uh, twilight is approaching. You're with your kids and your husband. You are. It's cold. You have yes. no food. You have no snacks. Any parent yeah. knows if you don't have snacks when you're off uh, on an adventure, it's perilous. Rookie uh, mistake. Yeah. <laughs> and basically, you get this creeping feeling that you're lost. So, what do you do? So, uh, I took a moment when my kids and my husband were distracted, and I was like, I'm going to just get out my phone and just like reassure myself that I know where I am. So, can I ask, are you trying to make it that they don't see the phone because you're sort of in the woods and you're trying to be disconnected? Is that correct? Maybe, but I think it was more that I, I felt like I should know where I was. That right. I shouldn't have to rely on my phone to tell me where I was when right. I'm like at this place that I know so well. Right. Because let's be clear, you've been going to this cottage since you were a child. Like you yeah. really, it's your lifelong home. That's right. Like there's, and I, you know, I pride myself on being able to walk down to the lake without a flashlight. Like I know the place. Right. Like it feels like a part of me. And yes. Then, and then... <laughs> And then to not know where I was there was, was alarming, you know? And, um, so yeah, I didn't want, I was like, I was being sheepish. I, I'm sheepishly saying that I was doing it covertly because I, I didn't want to admit that I didn't know where I was. Right. A little bit of ego involved, which is not like you, I'm going to say, but okay. So you pull out your phone. What happens? My phone dies in the cold. You know how it does. You like, you click the button to make it happen. And then it just like goes dead. And you're like, and, and so I was thinking, all right, now we're really hooped. I didn't, mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't know how we were going to get back. So then I, and I didn't want to alarm the kids because, you know, that doesn't help. And so I like pulled Steve aside and I was like, I don't know. I'm not sure where we are. And, and he said, he said to just stay the course. Um, and then lo and behold, we took like 25 steps and there we were at the road. So it was fine. And, you know, it was, I didn't need to have panicked, but I did because I didn't, I mean, the point, the thing that I wanted to explore was what happens in our heads when, when you have that feeling that you don't know where you are and you get turned around. Right. And how do you know places? So, so in this case, in this, you know, this, what shocked me when you told me this is that these are in fact woods you've known your whole life and you did just for a few moments, but very scary moments did not know where you were and did not know how you would get home. So I, I think what's interesting here and, and as you poked into the science of wayfinding, which turned out being way more fascinating than either one of us anticipated, I think, um, you discovered that it's not just you. It's like, this happens all the time to experts. So tell me a little bit about that. You know, there are people who professionally move around in the woods and get lost. You're and talking like forest rangers or... Yeah, that's right. right. So I, I talked with um, Colin Ellard, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Waterloo. And he told me a story about a ranger who went out in the woods and got turned around just like I did. And he was so convinced that he, that, that he was going the way he thought he was going and that his compass must be wrong, that he actually smashed his compass on a rock. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Yeah. And he was turned around. He, he was going the opposite direction that he thought he was. And uh, so Colin told me that he now takes two compasses when he goes out just to be sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's funny, since writing the story, I've heard from lots of people who have had similar experiences, like on their very own property, they just, something happens and they just lose their way. And and suddenly the pieces aren't where they expect them to be. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that. What is going on in your brain when you're looking for places um, and you can't find them? 
It's a good question. So for me in that situation, I was using a part of our cognitive process called path integration, which is what keeps a running tally of where we are by remembering where we've been and how we got there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's holding a course when you're walking through an environment like the woods, that's not, you know, on a, on pavement, on a straight sidewalk, it's really hard for us to do. We actually can't keep track of our movements very well. Right. So, um, there, there were researchers have done studies where they've unleashed people into the woods and just their only job that they have to do as study, study characters is to walk a straight line and they can't do it. Right. In the woods. Yeah. I can, I can get that. I mean, there's lots of obstacles in your way and everything looks the same. Yeah. So yeah, part of it is that obstacles. A part of it is that we have, you know, there are little asymmetries in our bodies that, that we just don't, we don't move exactly the same on both sides. And so we, we tend, we tend to, to pull to one direction without even realizing it. And it's slight, but over a long period of time, it builds up. And in, in addition to having the obstacles that you mentioned, and suddenly we're not we're not moving in a straight line. Anymore. Right, right. That's no surprise. So when you're walking in the woods, and I think this is probably more familiar to people as they're walking in the city, you're actually noticing, oh, there's a stop sign with a sticker on it. And oh, yeah, when you come back, oh, yeah, there we are, because there's the stop sign with a sticker on it. Whereas in the woods, perhaps you're not mapping it in the same way. I think that's right. The landmarks are different. If you're not really paying attention, those landmarks can easily look like one another. So you know, a, a certain tree, if you're not, if you're not noticing the features of that tree, it's going to look like the next tree. So we really have to pay attention to, to the small features. There's a great term for this, the mental map. So tell us a little bit about that mental map. Before we talk about the mental map, there's what's called procedural memory. So this is like muscle memory. Mm-hmm. So it's what allows us to go from point A to point B without thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you drive to work uh, or you walk to the park in your neighborhood, you do those things without thinking about it. You're not thinking, okay, how do I get there? Because you know, you've done it every day for the last 20 years. Right. And so it's, that's procedural memory. You, you can plan your dinner or have a conversation at the same time without having to think about what you're doing. The cognitive map is essentially a system for the brain to keep up without using those higher cognitive functions and to not get exhausted. I spoke with Giuseppe Ieria, a professor of cognitive neuroscience at the University of Calgary about this. It allows us to link up these locations in our minds without having to you know, go from point A to point B to point C to point D. We can sort of relate to them all at the same time. Okay, so let me see if I get this clear. In your mental map, you have a tree and a church and a school, say. Um, so you're not thinking, okay, I got to find the tree. I got to find the church. I got to find the school. You're just going, you're moving between all of them and your brain is just registering them. And that's creating the mental map. So it's not even necessarily a conscious process all the time. It's just something that you are creating as you go, but your brain is doing it without you purposefully building it yourself. Is that correct? I think that's right. So as you're walking you know, to the tree, you're noticing where, you know, in the back of your mind where your school is and you know where the church is. And so the map fills in. And the more you make that route, the more, the stronger your mental map becomes. 
Okay, so here's something that I was super fascinated for you to find out. When that it has to do with GPS, and so um, I'll tell you a quick story. When I was driving up to my cottage for the first time with my husband, he was then my boyfriend. He was insistent that he use uh, you know a wayfinding app on our phone, Waze, I think it was. And I was so incredulous because I thought, well, this is the cottage I've been going to since I was a child. I've driven this route hundreds of times, and here you are pulling out your GPS. And I was so offended. (laughs) Um, And I think that for him, that's how he, you know, he feels secure going in places. He loves the technology of a GPS. And, you know, over time in our family, we have come to rely on ways for any trip, large or small. And it's kind of a point of contention between (laughs) us, truthfully, but... But I mean, obviously, it's very helpful when you're when you're out going on a new route to have, you know, ways tell you how to get there. But I'm curious if that's actually made us worse at finding things, you know, even off a paper map or by our memory. Has have has anyone been studying that? And over time, is it sort of messing with our brain's ability to form these mental maps? So the way our brains work is they're what's called plastic. And they don't mean plastic as in like Barbie doll plastic. They mean that it's it's constantly changing. So when you want to pick up a new skill, like playing tennis or uh, learning a new language, our brains relearn or they reshape themselves in order to to learn that new skill. Okay. Which is great. But the bad side of that is that if we don't continue to use a certain skill, then it drops off. Right. Just, it's a muscle. Your brain's a muscle. Yeah. And so those... Um, those neurons get repositioned for other jobs. Right. So if we are not, if we're never navigating, if we're always using our, our GPS, then we're going to, we're not going to be as good at it anymore. Our brains aren't going to be optimized for that function anymore. However, I think that I mean, what I, what I learned from Giuseppe is that you have to kind of think about what you're, what you want out of that situation. So if it's a place you're only going to go to once, by all means, use your GPS mm-hmm. because there's no, you don't, you're not going to build a, a cognitive map. It's not going to do you any good. Right. So pick your, t- if, but if you're going to a new town, that's going to be your new cottage town for the next 20 years, then yes, when you get there, get the lay of the land. Maybe you want to use your GPS for that, but then walk around and let your brain learn it mm-hmm. and build up that skill, mm-hmm. keep that skill active. And same thing when you're at your cottage, um, he suggested doing things like, navigating a, a square kilometer and getting to know that really well and then adding to that uh, over time. Right. And I, yeah, it's interesting. So I, so the upshot is, yes, they are making us lazy <laughs> GPS apps. They're making us less capable of wayfinding ourselves, even on routes that we've never traveled um, because we come to rely on them and our brain is, is reassigning those neurons, I think is what you said. Yeah. So if we're not, if we're not if we're never doing that, then yes, our brains are, are not going to maintain that skill. So interesting. I love that. So, um, you know, okay, so that's maybe a tip. Don't rely on GPS. But what are some other ways that we can strengthen our wayfinding abilities? So absolutely looking for landmarks when you're out and about is, is something that you can do. Um, and like I said, um, having an area that you learn sort of piece by piece. So pick, pick a, a, a square kilometer that you're going to get to know and then add to that over time. Um, as you're walking around, paying attention to distinctive trees and rocks, 
uh, or if you're in the city, buildings, uh, mm-hmm. other landmarks, and and make them personal. This was a really interesting tip. So that if you if you can create a story around it, your brain is better at holding on to it. So you know, a lunch that you or sorry, a rock that you had lunch on, or um, a really beautiful sunset that you remember at a certain point, or a mm-hmm. funny anecdote that happened. You know, somebody fell down and bumped their knee and. And, you know, there were tears and then there was laughter, you know, build up the stories about a place and that helps them cement in your mind. So I guess another tip might be make sure your phone is fully charged and warm when you're out on a winter adventure. (laughs) Absolutely. Lan, this is really awesome stuff. And uh, your story was in the May issue of Cottage Life and was really fascinating. So if you're interested in learning more, definitely check that out. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. And uh, don't worry, I still think you're excellent at directions, regardless (laughs) of this one experience. I got to keep working on it. That's what I learned. (laughs) I guess we all do. I guess we all do. Thank you so much for coming on, Leanne. Thanks, Michelle. Talk to you soon. Over the years at Cottage Life, we've been so lucky to have some of Canada's most distinguished writers reflect on life at the cottage. Among them is Canadian journalist, playwright, and novelist David McFarlane. David is the author of the Giller Prize-nominated novel Summer Gone, which is set in cottage country on the shores of Georgian Bay. His real-life visits to an island cottage on the bay also provide the fodder for this essay, Buried Treasure, which appeared in the July-August 1998 issue of Cottage Life. David's essay is read by Pedro Mendez. The invitation to Mr. Thompson's treasure hunt was waiting for us when we arrived at the cottage. We had no idea what to make of it. We were not, to put it mildly, cottage types. Our biggest problem was that the rocky island in Georgian Bay, where we were spending our first family summer holiday, had not exactly been childproofed. The shoreline fell steeply to deep water. The paths across the island, steering a route between ankle-snapping drops and patches of poison ivy, were a little vague certainly more vague than the downtown sidewalks to which our two young children, ages six and three, were accustomed. I was the one who had arranged to rent a cottage in a sleepy inlet to the north of Perry Sound. My wife was surprised when I told her, but unruffled in the way wives are when they think they can easily undo a husband's silliness. I had not mentioned the deposit. What's it like? she asked. I listed its attractions, on an island, no hydro, No running water, no telephone. Have you completely lost your mind? And for the first two days, as the rain fell and as the fire sputtered and smoked and as we continued to shout impatiently at the children to put on their life jackets, it appeared as if I had lost my mind. What had I been thinking? Well, actually, I had been thinking of my childhood summers, of a few magical holidays at a cottage that my parents had rented when I was young. I wanted our children to have the same kind of experience. But after the second day of calamine lotion, damp towels, and crazy eights, I began to think that nostalgia was not an entirely useful tool for the planning of family holidays. Everything changed, however, on the third day, the day of Mr. Thompson's treasure hunt. The sun came out, for one thing. We peered at a view that had been largely shrouded by mist and rain, and realized that we were in an astonishingly beautiful place. By early afternoon, we were heading carefully to Mr. Thompson's by canoe. Mr. Thompson, 
a cordial gentleman of about 70, greeted us warmly on his dock. He and his two equally gracious brothers shared a lovely old cottage on a windswept point and have summered on the inlet all their lives. In the six summers we have returned since, I have never quite sorted out the complex ties of blood and marriage by which the family is related to almost everyone else in the inlet. Mr. Thompson, a man of infinite patience and with the ability to communicate directly and magically with children, explained to the young people how the treasure hunt worked. Most of them already knew. Teams of three or four were each given a compass, a list of bearings, and a quick lesson in orienteering. And, if they followed their readings carefully, they would eventually discover the treasure. A peach pit. This was to be returned to the Thompson's cottage and exchanged for candy bars. The courses varied in difficulty. The most advanced involved heading off across the water. My wife and I watched with trepidation as our six-year-old daughter waved bravely from the bow of a departing rowboat. Just untying the apron strings a little, Mr. Thompson said to my wife. Our son was with a much more junior team, pursuing a land-bound course behind the cottage. Mr. Thompson and I followed them, and, near the end of their quest, he said something that I still take to be the great secret of summer, and which, more than anything, is the reason we return to the inlet year after year. I had spotted the little cairn of stones where the peach pit was hidden. I had absent-mindedly started moving towards it while the kids were still crouched over their compasses. Mr. Thompson placed his hand on my arm, holding me back. Always, he said solemnly, let the children discover the treasure. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. Some cottage memories I want to keep forever, like the proud look on my son's face the first time he hooked a fish, or keeping him up late so he could see all the stars that we never see back in the city. But if I could forget one thing about the cottage, it would be the swarms of mosquitoes. And that's tough to do when you're covered in itchy reminders of every second you spent in shorts. So to make sure my family and I remember the good stuff, we never forget to use off gentle insect repellent. It repels mosquitoes for up to five hours, and the deep-free formula isn't oily, greasy, or sticky. So now I can remember the good stuff and forget the mosquitoes. As I mentioned off the top of the podcast, this year marks the 35th anniversary of Cottage Life. To celebrate our birthday, we're indulging a bit and have asked our readers to share some of their favorite tips or stories that they have discovered in the magazine. This one, from cottager Beth Hayhoe, is particularly delightful, especially for anyone who has suffered through a weekend of difficult guests. The most fun thing I learned from Cottage Life was a story about cottagers who had kindly invited guests to their cottage. Unfortunately, the guests complained about everything, even things like weather and bugs, which are clearly out of the control of the cottagers. Finally fed up, the owners served a meal and then let the dog wash the dishes and put them away in the cupboard. The guests suddenly found a reason to go home very early. The cottagers laughed, pulled out the dishes, and washed them, and enjoyed the rest of their time. Well done to those cottagers. Hey, if you can't get them to leave, just freak them out so they'll never come back again, right? That 
that's it for this episode, the first one of season three. If you're enjoying the podcast and you don't know about our magazine, let me take a moment to tell you why you should subscribe to Cottage Life. First of all, the magazine offers you more of the same great content you heard today, including all the things you don't know you don't know about life at the lake. And by supporting the magazine, you're enabling us to make this podcast. And podcast listeners get a special deal. Sign up today for the magazine using the code cottagelife.com slash pod offer, and you'll get six issues plus a free copy of our amazing Cottage Spaces book featuring our favorite cottages from 35 years of publishing. All this for just $24.95. Here's that code again, cottagelife.com slash pod offer. And while I've got you signing up for things, please take a minute to subscribe to this podcast. That way, each new episode will automatically download to your app and will be ready for you to enjoy. We'll have new episodes every Thursday throughout the summer. And if you're loving it, please leave us a review. It helps people find us. Of course, Cottage Life is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Look us up and leave us a comment if you're so moved. We always love to hear from you. Our sound design is by Amanda Fusco. This podcast is produced by Catherine Jun and me, Michelle Kelly. I'll see you on the dock. <laughs>